I would say today that the consensus we have reached on anti-corruption controls in the corporate world is the kind of thing that a human rights campaigner or a climate change campaigner would dream of. This is what human rights people fantasize about, that they would get to the stage that we have reached with anti-corruption compliance. So what's fascinating is that despite there being all this consensus, all this consistency on what it takes to have a good anti-corruption program as a corporate, despite everybody having a zero tolerance for corruption policy, despite all this effort, regulatory attention and budget, worth asking how much progress we've actually made on tackling corruption as a societal issue. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Dan Huff, Professor of Politics at the University of Sussex. And today I'm really pleased to be able to talk to Alison Taylor. She is the Clinical Associate Professor at NYU Stern in the United States. And Alison has been writing books or one very interesting looking book on business ethics and the challenge of dealing with corruption and a range of other things. So I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to Alison about that today. Hi, Alison. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we're really pleased that you, you could come on board. Um, first and foremost, right. Can, can you talk to us about how you ended up writing a book on business ethics and corruption? What's your background that led you to, to, to write this? Yeah, so this is actually a good way into the book. So the 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 title of the book is Higher Ground, How Business Can Do the Right Thing in a Turbulent World, which might immediately strike everybody as why on earth I would have embarked on such a pretentious and overambitious project. But I think part of the problem today, right, is that we have completely lost sight of what it means to be a good business. We don't agree. We are having an incredibly polarized odd conversation, whether that's about ESG or woke washing or ethics or whatever, you know, that is basically a sort of proxy battle uh, on the role of business in society. And it's got so out of control that we don't even have the right terms or words to discuss what we're talking about. One of the things I found fascinating when I was doing research for this book is I would get on the phone to interview a famous uh, business ethics expert. And one of the first or second things they would say to me is I try at all costs to avoid using that word. So we don't even have the language to frame the problem um, or discuss solutions. So the reason I decided to embark on this very uh, overambitious project is that I worked in various dimensions of business ethics um, over my career. And most significantly for this podcast, I spent 12 years between 2003 um, and the beginning of 2015 working in corporate investigations. So I worked on a, uh, for a firm called Control Risks. I was head of investigations Middle East and Africa. I was subsequently head of investigations uh, in the Americas. So as I don't need to tell you, uh, 2003 onwards was the era that corporate anti-corruption ramped up. And I was working in what we used to call, before we all became high-risk collapsing markets, what we used to call high-risk emerging markets. And so the, the trajectory of anti-corruption compliance 
watching the corporate community move from that's just the way they do business over there to the ramp up of the FCPA and then the UK Bribery Act and then the kind of emerging international consensus on anti-bribery, kind of the ramp up of laws, the ramp up of corporate attention, the really kind of dramatic shifts in this field that I saw during my career are a really huge part of, of, of the story I want to tell. Now, after 2015, I moved into what is more than usually called sustainability or ESG or corporate citizenship. And one of the things we might get into is the, the, the difference between the sort of ethics and compliance function and the sustainability function and where they connect and where they don't. But, but to, to the point of anti-corruption, what my experience in anti-corruption taught me was how dramatic an impact regulatory attention can have. I would say today that the consensus we have reached on anti-corruption controls in the corporate world is the kind of thing that a human rights campaigner or a climate change campaigner would dream of. This is what human rights people fantasize about, that they would get to the stage that we have reached with anti-corruption compliance. So what's fascinating is that despite there being all this consensus, all this consistency on what it takes to have a good anti-corruption program as a corporate, despite everybody having a zero tolerance for corruption policy, despite all this effort, regulatory attention and budget, worth asking how much progress we've actually made on tackling corruption as a societal issue. So I find this fascinating topic and a fascinating way into these debates partly because it illustrates that most of the things we tout as solutions are questionable when we look at how they're actually applied. I mean, there's so many interesting parts of that narrative. I don't really know where to start. But one thing that occurs to me is that that, that it's really interesting that people in other sectors look at the anti-corruption sector and say, I wish I was you. Exactly. That, that's something I, I, I didn't envisage you saying. Now, what, what do they then say when they dig a bit deeper? Do they still think they wish they were us? They do. I mean, I don't know the degree to which you're following. There's a debate in the EU at the moment about supply chain oversight and human rights due diligence and generally human rights practitioners are like, wow, now we're not a soft law, nice to have thing out of the sustainability department. Now the lawyers are paying attention. The adults in the room are going to get budget. We're going to get senior attention. We'll make the business case. Everything's going to be great. Finally, our field's going to mature. And I always say to them, I hate to sound like a killjoy, but not so fast, because what I've also seen during this time is, you know, when I first started doing, I would do these big due diligence projects in, in places like the Congo um, and Nigeria. I'd have a huge budget to go around and dig in and get corporate filings and interview a million people and really get kind of inside intelligence and help companies map the political landscape. And now, as you probably know, all these tools have become completely commoditized. Now everyone's trying to do this due diligence for $1,000 a pop using online tools. And so it's really, you know, I in general probably would conclude that all this attention is positive, but I do think it's a question of, of, of be careful what you wish for. You get a lot of benefits if corporations start to see something as a legal threat. threat. You certainly do get this budget and attention. But what you also get is corporations trying to protect 
protect themselves and their own reputations and their own risk profile. So what we have what we have now is this very clear international consensus that what you need to do to fight corruption is you have an anti-corruption policy and you train people and you investigate breaches and you signal zero tolerance and you disclose facilitation payments. And all of this is about protecting the corporation from legal incursions. So arguably, right, we have not started to consider corruption if we think of it as a governance-related externality. We've not started to consider this in terms of impact. We've not started to consider, you know, from a point of view of corporate practice, I know academics consider this, but, you know, what you do if you have government officials looking for bribes, you know, everybody points the finger at each other. It's very, very much more difficult to have collective action in the anti-corruption world than it is in human rights, partly because of the legal attention. So people worry about antitrust. People worry about sharing confidential data. And so we've got everybody with these really nice tight control policies. One, they're not tackling corruption as an impact. Two, they don't have good answers on what you are supposed to do if you're operating in a market where you can't get, you know, your goods out through a port or your people through checkpoints without extorted bribe payments. They don't tackle kleptocracies because very often those government officials aren't asking for bribes. They're just hooking you up with some local company or local oligarch. It's not about bribery. It's about influencing pe influence peddling. They certainly don't cover the legalized corruption we see in the US with campaign finance and lobbying and all the rest of it. So what we've done is we've regulated something that's easy to investigate and easy to control, which is technical bribery. We have not started to tackle the wider challenges of corruption. And we've seen these legal mechanisms as far more of a solution than they actually are. But your book title nonetheless gives me hope. Because... <laughs> right. Now, you, you may need to, to, to temper down that hope that I, that, that's existing at this end. But you say how how business can do the right thing. So you infer that there is a way forward here. And I'm hoping it's going to be really convincing. Um, can you talk us through what business should be doing there? Sure. So I think one of the, you know, so three things have changed, right? We had in the past couple of decades, an enormous increase in transparency. I just spoke to you about doing uh, investigations in West Africa in the early 2000s, and how little you could find out. So since then, of course, we've seen the rise of I call it strategic leaking. Leaking is the new whistleblowing. Right, we saw yeah. WikiLeaks got founded. I'd been investigating this the Trafigura, um, the shipping company, dumped a lot of toxic waste in, in Cote d'Ivoire in, in, in the early 2000s. I spent a year investigating it. Nothing happened. Couldn't prove intent. And then WikiLeaks gets founded. They publish Trafigura's internal emails and everything changes. Even more significantly, we know about the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers and all these kind of offshore leaks. So that, I think, has probably done more than the FCPA to illustrate to the public that corruption is not a case of greedy government officials in China and just the way they do business over there. Corruption is to a very great extent facilitated by the international financial system, facilitated by the same uh, approaches and structures that mainstream credible corporations uh, use. And so we've started to have a much less, I think, racist and more useful conversation about how corruption actually happens. So that's one example, I think, of the changes that have happened. 
happened. Just as problematic and less directly relevant to corruption, we've seen business much more drawn into political positions, taking political stands. This is particularly a US story, but the rise of corporations speaking up on immigration and gun control and reproductive rights and climate change and Putin invading Ukraine, you know, that's a big trend of the Trump administration. Everyone's now, now that it's uh, Israel and Hamas and all of that, I think everyone's thinking better of it. But we've seen this. I was going to ask you about that because companies are, uh, I get the impression from where I'm sitting, companies are beginning to to think about whether they need to make statements about things that that, that really, I'm not quite going to say don't concern them because you could make a case that everything concerns everybody. Right. But are, are companies stepping back from, from being as out there as they perhaps were just a few years ago? I think they're trying. I mean, one problem is you, you've, we've sort of opened the Overton window. We've opened Pandora's box. Once you've said as a corporate leader, I care about more than protecting shareholder value, then uh, your employees, which is, is, is my third point, young employees think very differently about this, are going to start to hold your feet to the fire. They're going to start to look at whether you mean what you said. One of the, I think, unintended ironic consequences of this rise of corporations speaking up is that it has refocused everybody on questions of whether they mean what they say, and particularly the gap between speech and spending. So there is something positive happening if we think of corruption as a broader issue than just technical bribery. There is something positive happening in that there is greater awareness and attention uh, about corporate influence peddling, regulatory capture, those kind of topics. But now we're in this super messy era where everybody is yelling at you. Corporations have overpromised. You sort of have this rhetoric. If any of my stakeholders cares about this thing, I've got to do something about it. There's a lot of glib overpromising. There's a lot of PR-led approaches. And there's a lot of, you know, we need business to solve societal challenges because we've got nowhere else to go. You know, it's kind of like no one believes in the government. So we've kind of turned to business because we're desperate. So I think part of that you'd asked a while ago about the path to higher ground. I think part of this starts with being much more honest and focused about what you can and can't achieve, not over-promising, focusing on issues actually material to your business and being very, very clear about where you need supportive government policy, where you need civil society and where your own controls and risk management aren't going to do the job. And that, of course, brings us back to the corruption landscape. I mean, again, lots of interesting dimensions there, but you're talking then predominantly about businesses in in, in the Western world, Anglo-Saxon companies, maybe? Is it narrow, as narrow as that? Or are you talking about business in general everywhere? I mean, I certainly focus on the US because these issues are particularly fraught and issue, and companies sure. in the US are particularly politically exposed. But I think this is a global phenomenon. There's an interesting, there's interesting surveys from Herbert Smith, the law firm, showing a huge rise in employee activism. And I'll give you an example. You know, because there's now this focus on hypocrisy, these issues do have global dimensions. So after George Floyd was murdered and every CEO in America felt obliged to stand up and say suddenly they really cared about racism, you know, everyone collectively discovered systemic racism in 2020. Uh, one of the companies that did that, because every business uh, operating in America kind of had to do that, was HSBC. The next consequence was employees in Hong Kong saying, well, you care about those protests. Why don't you care about these protests? Uh, you know, you do a good job uh, pulling out of Russia when Putin invades Ukraine five seconds later. Well, what are you doing in Saudi and China? So... 
I do think there is a global dimension and I do think it is genuinely challenging with the best will in the world to be globally consistent and to adapt to local conditions. I think that's one of the challenges and one of the reasons why people think uh, corporate values is, is, is so un it's such an unworkable thing. Yeah, it, it, it can come across as very unwieldy, that's for sure. Um, I was going to just go one, one step back. You mentioned the FCPA there. What, what role do you think sort of international bribery legislation has, has played in, in driving change in this area? I mean, it's not just the FCPA. There's like the UK Bribery Act, big, strong piece of legislation as well. I mean, do, do, do you think they have, uh, have been significant players in driving changes here or, or are they are they on the edges of it all, really? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a kind of under-discussed, maybe it's more discussed in the corruption world, it's an under-discussed and remarkable story. The FCPA, as we know, uh, came into play in, in, in 1977. I would say uh, enforcement kind of really kicked off with Siemens, right? 2006, 2005. And then there was a very, very dramatic ramp up. I don't think if you had looked at the uh, FCPA and looked at what was going on in, let's say, 2001, you would have thought that things were going to play out the way they did. You know, there was certainly this idea that this is an intractable challenge. There's nothing we can do. You lose competitive advantage. And what we, in fact, saw was the uh, emergence of a remarkable international consensus. I'm certainly not saying this is perfect, but there is more international coordination. There's more regulatory coordination nation, there is a remarkable degree of consensus about what it takes um, to have a good anti-corruption program as a corporation. There is global consistency. You know, when I started off, it would be, you know, these, these big multinationals I was working for trying to impose these standards on their suppliers and on their distributors. Now, I think anywhere in the world, if you're a company of any size, whether it's, you know, Myanmar or West Africa or the Middle East or wherever, you know that if you want to do business with a global business, you need to promise not to pay bribes. That is an absolutely astonishing change. I was going to say that, that's a huge thing to say, right? That, that is a big, big change. So, so what's interesting is how much better have things really got out there? There's quite a lot of evidence corruption is just as bad a problem as ever. It's just taking new forms and that we've we've tackled one problem um, at the expense of the other problems. I mean, in, in the corruption world, we, we always assume or many folks within this world assume that human beings are rational actors. Right. And, and they will move with the times. They have their sets of preferences that they will ultimately look to try and make sure that whatever their pref whatever number one is on their own list, they they'll look to try and do justice to that. So interest will drive behavior. And that leads me on to, to that next question. I mean, it, it's now pretty logical that you have to do set things as a big business looking to engage with the wider world. But that doesn't mean that actually we've just prompted folks to be a bit cleverer. Uh, about how they get what they really want. And as of yet, we've not been particularly good at, uh, at pinpointing how they're doing this or finding ways to, to generate legislation or generate sets of good practice guidelines to stop them doing this. But we will, and then they'll find something else. Is that a rather dark analogy? I, I, I mean, I think humans are tricky, right? And I think, you know, it's oh, yeah. all this sort of goals and targets and controls they encourage people to think of more creative ways to get around them. I, I interviewed Hui Chen, who was the, the DOJ's compliance monitor for my book, and she said she felt that anti-corruption, or maybe it was compliance training in general, very often taught employees exactly how they how to get around the policies. They didn't treat uh, teach employees about the policies. There's lots of problems with sludge. There's lots of problems with one-sites-of-its-all training. There's lots of problems with just kind of 
neurotic control processes that that do not have the effect on employees that they're supposed to have. I think, though, the even bigger problem is we need corporates to take collective action. We need action by both governments and businesses. We're not quite sure how that works. We used to tell ourselves a story that, you know, the problem was liberalization, right? I, I think there's a story that the anti-corruption world emerged from the end of the Cold War. A lot of it is like privatized. We won't then have a problem anymore. This is all about the free market. You know, I don't, I, I think how well, I ask how well that's working out. So um, I think all our all our efforts to kind of try and change and and make uh, societies and businesses and the business environment less corrupt it's 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 a little bit more difficult and complicated than that, and it takes a little bit longer. And much as I would probably, on balance, argue that all the legislation we've been talking about has been positive, I do think it's encouraged corporations to think about how to defend themselves from reputation and, and regulatory risk. And we haven't really started to, to tackle in a meaningful way the societal impacts of corruption. And, and what so what is the role of the international anti-corruption community in all of this? I mean, the OECD has its anti-bribery treaty. There's a whole, you know, most international institutions now talk about corruption in some way, shape or form. Does that fit into this? It's not necessarily doing much harm, but also we need to be clear about what it's also not able to do. Would that be fair or, or, or not? I mean, I think the, the, the international anti-corruption community, just like the international sustainability community, these kind of big bodies that drive these voluntary um, agreements, these voluntary networks, that's a shift in norms. It is extremely interesting in, you know, sometimes it anticipates future regulation. If a company's thinking strategically, should be paying attention to these bodies. My understanding from your colleague, Robert Barrington, is that the combination, the conversation, I'm sorry, in those institutions has started to shift away from risk to businesses and towards the impact of corruption. So towards anti-corruption defenders, towards more of a connection with the human rights impacts, towards an understanding of these kind of wider systemic issues. So I think we've started to move to thinking about the impact of corruption um, on society. We've started to understand the kind of underlying drivers. I'm thinking about things like Sarah Chase's book, Thieves of State. So I do think the I do think the conversation is evolving in two very interesting ways. One more of a focus on the societal impact, and then two, there's much more understanding than there was ten years ago about the complicity of the Western financial system in all this, and much less pointing the finger at, at kind of quote unquote greedy slash underpaid because there's no fiscal capacity government officials in developing countries. So we're having a conversation that's less finger pointing and maybe ultimately will help drive more accountability. Here's hoping. Yeah, fingers crossed and all that. Um, much more specific question that occurs to me in this context is I, I, I had a class earlier this week with my with the MA students we have here at the University of Sussex and we were talking about um, deferred prosecution agreements. Um, big discussion point in the UK. I know the, the United States has them in, in different guises as well um, and it got there before the UK. Um, what's your take on, on that? A, a, a DPAs, I mean, many of my students basically see them as business costs. They say, you know, companies ain't daft. You know, they know that if they get caught and they deal with it in the right way, they'll have an extra business cost and then they'll carry on. Whereas others are a bit more idealistic and think that, you know, ultimately it's really hard to prosecute some of these bad guys. So DPAs may well be a step forward. Um, what would your take on this be? I mean, a complicated question. I think, a lot, you know, a lot of white collar crime in general is very difficult to prosecute, very difficult to build a case, very difficult to put it in front of the jury. 
the kind of cases uh, that get brought. I mean, there's there's interesting data from the US saying most white collar crime litigation relates to businesses with under 50 people, partly because it's so hard to hold these big multinational entities accountable. Now, these deferred prosecution agreements, I 100% concur that many businesses just see them as a cost of doing business. The fines are not in proportion uh, to the benefits. You don't necessarily see this di disgorgement. It may be better than nothing. That requires the state to be able to secure significant penalties. I think the worst case scenario is you have the DPAs and the kind of we don't admit liability and we just pay a small fine and we get off the hook and there's no meaningful muscle behind it either. So I think there's a problem bringing these ideas into the UK just because of the way the differences in the legal system. Yeah, they've been uh, they've been controversial. The UK, as you as you, I'm sure you know, and yeah, as yeah, our listeners know, they're, they're they're not something that um that there's, there's necessarily a consensus on. Um, look into the future. I was, was going to ask you to make a couple of predictions, um, Alison. One of the problems with predictions, of course, they are about the future, and therefore anything can happen. So, so I'm not going to hold you to them in any great detail. But I'm I'm just thinking in ten years' time, do you think the situation will be more or less complicated? And linked in with that, do you think it will be better or worse? Now, of course, you don't know the answer to either of those two. But what, what's your hunch? Where are we going? What, what, what's the, the track that we're on? Um, it will probably be just as complicated and it will probably be better or in even some worse. ways and, and, yeah. and worse in others. I spend a lot of time, as you probably do as well, worrying about AI and social media and misinformation and disinformation and the decline of democracy and, and you know, the fact that we don't even agree on facts. That is pretty scary. Uh, as you know, we're all, uh, most of the world's going to the polls this year. Pretty scary. I don't think democracy is going in a good direction. Uh, more, I get a lot of hope though, as you probably do as well, from being in the classroom. I genuinely see profound value shifts in younger generations. I genuinely see a thought and interest um, and an engagement with these topics. I think we are going to have a new generation of business leaders that think about these topics in new and original, interesting ways. I do think we're seeing a shift from tangible to intangible value. So trust and perception and stakeholder trust specifically are going to become more and more important. So swings and roundabouts, we could look at either way. The thing that cheers me up and keeps me going is, is, is seeing the brilliant young people and and i really believe they will run businesses differently from my generation well it's always nice to finish on a, on a positive note and i like that and i totally hear where you're coming from as well actually um so so just to round us up remind us again the book it's it, it was published in february right and and the title yeah, is published yeah. on uh february the 13th it's called higher ground how business can do the right thing in a turbulent world and for listeners interested in corruption chapter five is all about the anti-corruption story it tells a story of how i ended up as a witness in an fcpa case related to an all, all deal in angola people might find that interesting mm -hmm. um, i would obviously love any feedback from anyone uh listening to this podcast marvelous and, and who, who published it uh harvard business review press OK, so uh, one that we'll definitely be able to find pretty easily uh, yeah. with, with a couple of quick uh, flicks of Google. Um, fantastic. Alison, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Very best of luck with the with the book and with the future projects and um, hope to catch up again soon. Absolutely. Well, it's so wonderful to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. Cheers. Thank you.